0: Welcome to Karen Commons, a biblically minded podcast highlighting the people, conversations, and ethos of Karen University. All right, everyone, welcome to Karen Commons. I'm joined today by Dr. Todd Williams, president of Karen University. And Dr. Alan Gelzo, Senior Research Scholar in the Council of the Humanities at Princeton University, and Director of the James Madison Program's Initiative in Politics and Statesmanship. And I'm Ben Best, your host. Gentlemen, welcome and thank you for joining me today. I understand that uh, your friendship goes back a number of years. Dr. Gelzo, I know you spoke at uh, Dr. Williams' inauguration as the President of Cairn University. How long have you encouraged one another in your educational endeavors? Do you do you throw articles and books back and forth to one another? What does that relationship look like? It for
1: usually you? amounts to me needing perspective and going to Alan to ask him to give it to me.
0: <laughs> That's usually well, what I, it means. I, I, <laughs>
1: I try not to throw things at Todd, knowing
2: that everybody else is throwing things at Todd. And I thought, let me not make the burden one greater.
1: I, I think our, our paths first crossed in the late nineties with the. The Witherspoon work in Washington, D.C. Yeah. It was the first time, I think, that we actually crossed paths. And, uh, and then when I was uh, moving into the presidency in '05, Alan was uh, my first thought as an inaugural speaker, and uh, he graciously agreed to do that. And um, we kept in close touch. And he's been a very, very constant source of, of uh, generous uh, advice and counsel uh, with regard to the work here at Cairn University over the years.
0: Well, our conversation today is focused on education, and uh, maybe more specifically around uh, how Christians sh- should think about education, and I'd also like to delve a bit into your thoughts on the distinctives of Christian education. But if I may, if we could start the conversation here, uh, in, in your estimations, uh, how should believers think about their educational endeavors and the life of the mind?
2: Well, there's two ways of, of answering that, as it seems to me. Uh, One is about educational endeavors. I mean, life itself is education. Mm. What is St. Paul doing in his epistles? He's educating, he's teaching. How is the Lord addressed in the Gospels? Teacher, rabbi. It's it's always the, the matter of can you tell us, can you explain to us, can you lead things out for us? And the word education itself is from a Latin word, educo, to lead out, to bring out. And what we do as students is to find ourselves built up, built out, exploring, discovering all new things that we would not otherwise have been inclined to discover. For those who teach, there is an even greater task and... The New Testament makes it clear that it's, in fact, a greater responsibility, that those who teach are going to have to answer for more. What are you doing? You are taking the tender shoots, the plants, in Christ's garden, and you are looking for the best way that they can be fed and nurtured and grow into full bloom that glorifies God. And that is a task, that is a goal, which is sanctified in itself, and sanctifies, should sanctify, those who are the practitioners of it. So you might say that education, considered in all these ways, is an integral part of what it is to live the life of the gospel. We are not merely people who act, we are people who think. And we are instructed to be built up by the renewing of our minds. So all of these things are connected and should be trunked into any notion of Christian education. That's even before we start talking about, about subjects, about theology or about English or about history or, or, or whatever. What is the sense of responsibility and vocation? that we bring to this matter of education that's really the perspective i think that we
1: have to see the whole question in because it is as you say it is it's integral to being a christian it is it is necessarily that we are to be engaged in learning jesus had many followers he had those students that you know that were his students that in in whom he invested and uh it is an integral part i think of the Christian, not just the Christian faith, but the Christian life and, uh, and the scriptures replete with references to the life of the mind and what it means to be responsible with it. So it is organically and inherently part of our Christian faith. And I think that's what what makes it so important in terms of what we do in Christian education but to see it larger than that as as you're suggesting
2: and, and you know very typically a few of your students flunked their final absolutely exam. <laughs> absolutely but the good part was there was a makeup
1: That's exactly, <laughs> right. That's <Yeah>. exactly right <laughs> um,
0: you you've both been involved in education certainly higher education both Christian and non for decades now in that time what in your view has changed the education landscape most profoundly
2: the thing that strikes me the most, and that I would say is the most noticeable over, the, over these decades, has been the growth of administration and the role that administration in higher education has assumed. I can barely remember, I'm seeing this at the very end of what had been a prevailing model, in which an institution of higher learning was faculty and students, and what administration there was was almost always faculty who were doing something temporarily or part-time. Mm-hmm. But they still considered themselves to be fundamentally faculty. I can remember the old PCB days at 18th and Arch. And even the president in that in those days, that was a, this was Douglas McCorkle. Douglas McCorkle taught. He was primarily a teacher. Mm-hmm. And my goodness, he was a wonderful teacher. Mm-hmm. And the people who filled... What administrative roles there were, and there were not many, uh, were often people who had been or who were going once again to be teachers. A lot of administration has simply been called into being by the necessities, by let's call it the maturation of higher education as an industry. An HR person who I who I knew uh, years back said to me at one point, "You have to realize that about 25 percent of tuition." Goes to administrative tasks, Twenty-five. another 25% goes to compliance, another 25% goes, at the end of the day, about 25% of tuition actually goes to the educational process. And a lot of that is unavoidable. I mean, especially when you think about compliance. I mean, Todd, I, you, you have to deal with this on, a, on an everyday basis, but you have got compliance with municipal ordinances you have compliance with public utilities, you have compliance with Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and education office there. I don't like to think about how many trips you have to make right. on the turnpike right. to Harrisburg. Right. Um, and then there's federal compliance because not only do you have a Department of Education, but you also have the administration of student loans through the federal government. All of those, those, those most of those things didn't exist.
1: And then regional and professional accreditation programs. Oh, accreditation and
2: accreditations yet again. In in 1971 to 1975, those kinds of things barely existed. Right. And today they are an omnipresent demand mm-hmm. on the life of institutions. So, yes, it is possible to say, "Well, isn't it a pity that now we have so many administrators?" Um, the difficulty is, I'm not sure that that could be easily avoided. Now, what has also changed along with this is a sort of balance of relationships. It used to be, I mean, my memory, certainly, is that the relationships I had with faculty were very one-on-one. Those were the people I dealt with on an everyday basis. For the experience of undergraduates today, it is much more a matter that students are dealing with administrators, administrators understand that they have a separate role. A lot of the times, what you have is this bizarre moment where administrators and students find themselves on one side and faculty are on the other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is what creates, in some cases, some very toxic relations. Again, that is something that you did not see in what I want to call (laughs) my day. But in a sense, I've been living with that all my life because uh, as one of my children once said, "You never did graduate from college, did you?" I've, I've been in it, so to speak, all these years. But uh, these are these are some of the dramatic changes that I've noticed, and they apply as much to Christian higher education as to higher education in general.
1: And, and that is one of the challenges, because even in in Christian higher education, you're still part of this larger industry that's being pushed by all of these dynamics and factors. And one of the things that happens in that administrative drift or expansion that that you're referencing is you also have a problem in terms of missional consistency and missional commitment. And so for a place like Cairn, uh, one of the things I think that is always interesting for people to hear is how many of our administrators are still in the classroom. So I'm still teaching every semester. Virtually every senior vice president is teaching uh, at the university in some way as well. Most of our uh, academic administrators came from the faculty because it, it allows us to stay tied in a very personal way to the mission and to the students. And some of that is by necessity because we don't have the resources other institutions do to to grow an administrative infrastructure. But you can't avoid the things that you're talking about. It is It is really something how much that has transformed the way institutions operate and also, I think, has some impact on the kind of intellectual coherence that is part of an academic institution today.
2: I think one other noticeable development connected to this is how much administrative leadership not only has not come from the classroom, mm-hmm. but in fact never was connected to it. Right. If someone who is, for instance, sitting in Harrisburg, who is administering legislative mandates and inquiring about the enforcement of those mandates, is not going to think at first about what the impact of a mandate might be on Cairn as a Christian institution. They're just simply going to think, well, this is for all the institutions. And then you begin to have the back and forth, and then we have the, the, the pulling uh, in different directions. That's a moment when people are very likely to say, why do we have so many administrators? But we have what we have because in a way, the demand has moved so much in those directions.
0: So we can point to the regulating bodies, we can point to accreditation, we can point to the need for administrators to specialize in a particular piece of that endeavor and the industry that it upholds, all of which inevitably leads to a rise in student cost a number of other things as a a part of all of that. Apart from your direct involvement in education, you're also both deep thinkers, Uh, you both write regularly in various columns, you're both active churchmen, you're both Cairn University alumna, and uh, you each respectively have a love for history. Uh, So I'm curious to take a bit of a tangent here as we move back around, why should we be students of history?
2: Because you can't avoid it. If you're going to be anyone who aspires to a biblical worldview, you're being introduced to history just from the start. Pick up the Bible. What are you being instructed in? In the beginning. You're not being addressed in terms of, well, who are you now, and what are you feeling, and what are you thinking and seeing? No, it's, this isn't about you. This is about in the beginning, God. So you might say that the book of Genesis is a history lesson. And in fact, the first five books of the Bible are history lessons. And not only history lessons for the ancient people, what does St. Paul say? He says, these things were written that you might be instructed, Mm -hmm. that you might see these examples, that you might... and, And what does John say also in his gospel? These things are written so that you might believe. We're telling you a story about history. And when you understand that story, when you have embraced that history, that is integral to your believing. Believing is not merely a personal emotional response. It is a personal emotional response, but it is a response wrapped around historical fact, a historical Jesus, historical disciples, a historical gospel message. And when you look at it in that respect, yes, the Bible itself is directing us to a history that we should embrace. The great thing is we can embrace that and that becomes our history Mm -hmm. as well. One of the things that I think is particularly gratifying in the study of Christian history in particular is that what are you doing? You're discovering family. Mm -hmm. All right, the family who aren't actually here anymore, (laughs) but we know that that is actually a comparatively minor detail that even if they're not here physically, they are a cloud of witnesses. All right, that's a cloud of witnesses from time past. We learn from them, we also owe them something. We owe them fidelity. And understanding and embracing that, which we often think of as being a spiritual exercise, is also a historical exercise. So I can't disentangle the historical elements from the biblical and theological elements
1: they're simply rooted right there in a biblical faith and apart from that we find ourselves sort of uh, in danger of of a kind of contemporary arrogance personal arrogance to be to be ah historical is is to necessarily be arrogant because history is is sort of an act of setting yourself aside in in a way that is really profound. And I think that's one of the things that makes it difficult in today's culture where we're all told that we're truth makers and history is a tool of activism rather than seeking truth. We're truth seekers, not truth makers. And all of those things lead to a greater degree of humility, a a more robust perspective, as as you say, a more theologically integrated outlook. Uh, There's a lot that comes with appreciating and studying history in that way. A great man, and you will recognize this at once, Todd,
2: deplored what he called chronological snobbery. I was just thinking the same thing. (laughs) And, uh, And chronological snobbery simply is the notion that we, sitting right here at this particular moment in time, 2023 A.D., occupy a position that is unique and privileged and which does not need to be rooted in anything that went before. Exactly. And if that is the case, then we really have set the Bible itself at naught because that is an attitude that marches in exactly the different direction
1: from what we
2: read in the Bible.
1: I think that's exactly true, and I think in the same way we open with understanding that education, learning, teaching is all sort of intertwined with our being Christians, so is that respect for history and, uh, and a degree of humility and, and curiosity.
2: What's, um, I think, very interesting in the way we approach biblical history is the biblical history doesn't gussy anything up no
1: hmm.
2: biblical history is brutally frank raw it is there are people in there that you scratch your head about there is david and and uriah the hittite and yeah. bathsheba there is abraham and sarah they're they they do not always behave like saints That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. and you in know in, in one sense all right there's a comfort there because we know when we falter all right Righteous man falls seven times in a day Mm -hmm. is picked up. But we also look at the history of great people like that, and we realize they are great not because they were intrinsically perfect and always did everything right. They were great because of God's mercy, God's calling to them, God's grace. We learn a lesson about grace. We learn a lesson about fallenness. We learn a lesson about irony. We learn a lesson about how God... Right straight on crooked lines, which was a proverb I first read when I was in the old PCP mm-hmm. days, mm-hmm. and which has stuck with me ever since. Yes.
0: In thinking about your own educational journeys, uh, what aspects of history have been most intriguing to you and why? Uh, Dr. Williams, I know you you have a an appreciation of civics, American history. Uh, Dr. Gelzo you've written extensively on Lincoln and a book on Robert E. Lee. You've you've written in and around the Civil War and a proclivity in that specific era. But what what as you look back uh, is formative in both your educational journeys and what aspects of history have been most intriguing? What do you run back to?
2: Well, you know, the funny thing is, Ben, I never set out to be a historian. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never planned to be. Now, I always had a very lively interest in the subject. And it goes back to, oh my goodness, when uh, when I was a child, I was interested in history. But I never saw myself becoming
1: a historian. And I think that is a fairly common narrative for a lot of folks, particularly for a lot of our graduates who may have come to this institution thinking they were going to be preparing for ministry or simply studying uh, theology and Bible and then end up sort of having their interests broaden and actually bring that biblical and theological perspective to bear on a particular discipline. I think that was my case. Uh, and and I think that for me, the the, the issue of history has always been, an, an, and of course, Alan and his work has had an, an influence on my thinking around this in the, in the last uh 30 years or so that he's been working and writing, and others as well, but I, I've always sort of been someone who contextualizes, constantly contextualizing, and there's no way to contextualize that doesn't include history. If history is prologue, then that is, that is the way you contextualize something. And I think the testimony of so many graduates over the years, sort of a, a similar thing, I ended up at Temple University with no formal background in psychological studies. And it was the same, I had the exact same experience there entering graduate programs. And I hear it over and over again from our folks. And yet they had a great experience. They were probably a few steps ahead even though they hadn't actually studied in a specific discipline because one of the things that a theologically and biblically integrated education does for you is you learn to deal with text and people very well. You learn to think in an integrated fashion. You learn to think contextually, which I would think would serve you very well in the in the field of history and for me in terms of social theory. And I think that is one of the things, going back to where we started, that it's organic to who we are as Christians, which prepares us for those kinds of things. And And those opportunities come, as you say, and, and we we take them. You you have learned to think about why you think exactly yeah. you have acquired
2: epistemological self awareness right <laughs> all right there's right. a big technical term
1: but sure all right i think that yeah. really describes a- it. A- and any exercise where you're where you're doing anything hermeneutical yeah uh, forces a level of of intellectual responsibility and carefulness that serves well in, in virtually any discipline. Uh, to, one, to one of your points, Ben, on the question was also not just our interest in history, but specific areas. And Alan, you, you've shared with me personally sort of what it is about the, the 19th century, in particular the Civil War, and, and specifically Lincoln, and what it is about that that, that inspires your interest here. I think that would probably worth people hearing, because I think it, it it sort of illustrates that it's not a, it's not a single point in time that you like the weaponry of that particular era, or you like the (laughs) geographic... There's something larger in terms of your interest in that.
2: Well, the interest in the Civil War in Lincoln is is a very long-standing one. I mean, I was a child of the Civil War centennial years, and uh, it was very normal that way to have an interest in that subject. I found myself interested in Lincoln because, quite literally, I pestered my grandmother for a comic book biography of Abraham Lincoln, which I still have, but I pestered her for it at a, uh, a news agency in uh, the, the old uh, Philadelphia 33 station. And uh, that set me on a path that eventually led towards writing a great deal about Lincoln. So there's, there's a long-term connection that way. But there's also the connection of seeing in Lincoln and Lincoln's time some really remarkable things about American life itself. Mm -hmm. We as a democracy are committed in our bones to equality as a principle. That was right there in the Declaration of Independence. However, as one very astute observer of American life in the 19th century wrote, the passion for equality can have the negative result of discouraging excellence mm-hmm. and you see this in a lot of 19th century politics because look at the run of presidents that we had in the in the years before the civil war my goodness some of the most unmemorable people in American life. Right. I mean, you run the the line from Zachary Taylor, Millard Fillmore, Franklin Pierce, James Buchanan. When was the last time anyone celebrated the birthday of Franklin Pierce? Yes. And you think at this moment as we were descending further and further into what would become the chaos of the Civil War, what was what was going to happen? What, if the leadership dearth had been so dramatic up to that point, what hope did we have? And then suddenly there comes this man, Lincoln, and he is almost literally a gift. It was like, what good thing did we do to deserve Abraham Lincoln? And yet even that, he was not perceived as being that at the beginning. After his election, one newspaper editor asked in irritation, who will write this ignorant man's state papers for him? <laughs> oh I wonder if the editor ever had to eat those words sure. but you know this was the perception and you just cannot think of what would have happened to this country had it not had the kind of leadership that Lincoln provided at moments like that you it, it just seems marvelous it just seems wonderful that without any precedent or warm-up, suddenly at the moment when we needed it the most, we get an Abraham Lincoln. Otto von Bismarck, who I don't usually quote as an authority, Mm -hmm. once said that the Lord looks out for fools, drunks, and the United States of America. (laughs) And and if if there was ever a, a confirmation of that, I would
1: have to say that it's in the person of Abraham Lincoln. And I I think in that, and what I've always enjoyed about your work around that as well, is sort of talking about it in that way where you understand the sort of very robust narrative and context of Lincoln and his time in a way that there is something to learn from it. And I think that is actually one of the things that I've appreciated the most about reading during that time frame, which is one of my favorites, or The Founding, which again, we're teaching on that now in the civics class that I teach. But... But also, even in in points of ancient history or the 20th century with the Second World War, those pivotal moments in history where there is something profound to learn from the characters there, and I, I find myself and I and I tell folks this all the time with regard to, you know, everybody wants to know well, what are executives reading and what should I read. I I'm reading a, apart from. Biblical and theological works that are germane to what I'm thinking about are doing almost exclusively histories and biographies And I don't really spend much time on anything else You know some fiction here or there, but but for the most part the things that I learn the most from are these histories and biographies Because of what we learn from the lives of those that went before us and the events that preceded us There's there's a lot there to be gleaned and from the big moments I, I think things stand out in very stark ways. And, you know, Lincoln in the Civil War is certainly one of those for me. I have uh, found Alan's work to be extremely helpful in that way. And, and usually when we get together, we're talking about some book or other uh, that, that we're well, reading well, I'm, those Well, I'm times. looking up at your bookshelves
2: here, Todd. And the first thing that takes my eye are two volumes of biography of Churchill. Sure. There's another biography of Lincoln, it was it was once said by Logan Pearsall Smith that the mark, the genuine mark of a vocation, not just a job, genuine mark of a vocation, of a calling, was how much love you had for the drudgery of it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Lincoln had the love for the drudgery. He would be doing that kind of work at all hours of of the day and night. And one of his secretaries was really amazed by the fact that the day after his reelection in 1864 well everyone had been out celebrating that night no one else was in the white house the next day but this man came in because it was his job to bring the mail in Mm -hmm. he brought the mail into a suite of offices and then in the white house that were the president's office he was amazed to see lincoln at his desk Mm -hmm. and this man reflected on that and said how much comfort it gave him to realize that the fate of the nation was in the hands of a man who would not rest from the responsibility of oversight. I think, and people sometimes ask me, what what do you think is the most marvelous thing Lincoln ever wrote? And people will say, of course, the Gettysburg Address, the second inaugural. I like to take them to a letter that he wrote in July of 1862, to a man in Louisiana named Cuthbert Bullitt. And this, uh, this was a man who was complaining to Lincoln about union policies in Occupy Louisiana. And Lincoln told him pretty bluntly what the reason for the policies was. But at the end, he said, I shall do nothing in malice. What we are dealing with is too great for malicious dealing. And I thought, that is marvelous. Because not only does it speak a word of balance and peace to others, but also reminds us, we are only servants. You know, when I was a senior at PCB, Haddon Robinson came and preached a series that spring and over and across the street in the old Arch Street Presbyterian Church. And I have no idea how many of my peers may remember this, but I was struck so forcibly by the text he chose to preach on from, from the Gospel of Luke. When we have done everything that we are called to do, we must say, we are only servants. We've only done that which we were supposed to do. You don't pay yourself a compliment. You don't pat yourself on the back. You just realize, this is what I'm supposed to do. And when you see... An, an attitude like that in the hands of a man like Lincoln, then you think I want To aspire to that I want to practice and that.
1: and that issue of Looking at those kinds of characters and aspiring is not something that applies only to those that want to serve in the public square There there, there are things they are things that can be gleaned by everyone no matter what their station or occupation and therein I think lies the value of history and biography where as it's sort of you know the, to the degree to which popular culture and other things in our current day are making that less of an emphasis or consider it less important in grade school, middle school, high school curriculum. We're, we're losing something, not just in terms of our knowledge of the past, we're losing the opportunities for inspiration and aspiration because we're not looking at those kinds of things. And they have impact on, on every aspect of our life. My wife and I, a number of years ago, Someone asked a question about, you know, we've we gotten to this point in our marriage, you know, we want to be challenged to think about it different way. And we both said, you know what you need to do is read about John and Abigail Adams. And if you read about John and Abigail Adams and you're looking for what you can glean from the way they loved and cared for one another in the midst of an extremely critical time in history where they were they were under a great deal of pressure and suffering and the, the, the things that come out in their love for one another, their respect for one another, their relationship with one another, there's something to be gleaned from that. That's not learning about Abigail Adams, the, the first lady of the second president or John Adams, the second president, but actually learning something about the way in which their life worked and how you glean from that. That's what, that's what a vibrant reading of history does for you. It's not that there's something intrinsically
2: dull about the subject of history. To the contrary, it, for me, history is like this constant adventure movie right. going on in my mind. It's full of color, of life, of adventure, of, of decision. Uh, for me, it, I, I, I take the greatest personal delight in it. And yet I also realize that history has two serious functions... When I explain things in those terms, it will almost sound like I'm treating history as entertainment. All right, yes, there is a certain entertainment mm-hmm. aspect. You can be entertained by history. I'm glad you can, and I will try to talk history in a way that will catch your imagination like that. But at the same time, I also know that history has got two much larger functions to serve. One is inspiration, not just entertainment, but inspiration. Mm-hmm. I want people to come away from what they read saying, this was really bad, we are not going to let that happen again. Or they're gonna come away saying, this was really good, we must replicate this, we must go and do likewise. Inspiration. Second thing is explanation. How did we get here?